Chapter five, part three of Principia Ethica. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Frederick Carlson. Principia Ethica by G. E. Moore. Ninety-nine. D. So much then for moral rules or laws in the ordinary sense, rules which assert that it is generally useful under more or less common circumstances for everybody to perform or omit some definite kind of action it remains to say something with regard to the principles by which the individual should decide what he ought to do alpha with regard to those actions as to which some general rule is certainly true and beta with regard to those where such a certain rule is wanting alpha since as i have tried to show it is impossible to establish that any kind of action will produce a better total result than its alternative in all cases it follows that in some cases the neglect of an established rule will probably be the best course of action possible the question then arises can the individual ever be justified in assuming that his is one of these exceptional cases and it seems that this question may be definitely answered in the negative for if it is certain that in a large majority of cases the observance of a certain rule is useful it follows that there is a large probability that it would be wrong to break the rule in any particular case and the uncertainty of our knowledge both of effects and of their value in particular cases is so great that it seems doubtful whether the individual's judgment that the effects will probably be good in his case can ever be sent against the general probability that that kind of action is wrong added to this general ignorance is the fact that if the question arises at all our judgment will generally be biased by the fact that we strongly desire one of the results which we hope to obtain by breaking the rule it seems then that with regard to any rule which is generally useful we may assert that it ought always to be observed not on the ground that in every particular case it will be useful but on the ground that in any particular case the probability of its being so is greater than that of our being likely to decide rightly that we have before us an instance of its disutility in short though we may be sure that there are cases where the rule should be broken we can never know which those cases are and ought therefore never to break it it is this fact which seems to justify the stringency with which moral rules are usually enforced and sanctioned and to give a sense in which we may accept as true the maxims that the end never justifies the means and that we should never do evil that good may come the means and the evil intended by these maxims are in fact the breaking of moral rules generally recognized and practiced and which therefore we may assume to be generally useful thus understood these maxims merely point out that in any particular case although we cannot clearly perceive any balance of good produced by keeping the rule and do seem to see one that would follow from breaking it nevertheless the rule should be observed it is hardly necessary to point out that this is so only because it is certain that in general the end does justify the means in question and that therefore there is a probability that in this case it will do so also 
although we cannot see that it will. But moreover, the universal observance of a rule which is generally useful has, in many cases, a special utility, which seems deserving of notice. This arises from the fact that even if we can clearly discern that our case is one where to break the rule is advantageous, yet, so far as our example has any effect at all in encouraging similar action, it will certainly tend to encourage breaches of the rule which are not advantageous. We may confidently assume that what will impress the imagination of others will not be the circumstances in which our case differs from ordinary cases and which justify our exceptional action, but the point in which it resembles other actions that are really criminal. In cases, then, where example has any influence at all, the effect of an exceptional right action will generally be to encourage wrong ones and this effect will probably be exercised not only on other persons but on the agent himself for it is impossible for any one to keep his intellect and sentiments so clear but that if he has once approved of a generally wrong action he will be more likely to approve of it also under other circumstances than those which justified it in the first instance this inability to discriminate exceptional cases offers of course a still stronger reason for the universal enforcement by legal or social sanctions of actions generally useful it is undoubtedly well to punish a man who has done an action right in his case but generally wrong even if his example would not be likely to have a dangerous effect for sanctions have, in general, much more influence upon conduct than example, so that the effect of relaxing them in an exceptional case will almost certainly be an encouragement of similar action in cases which are not exceptional. The individual can, therefore, be confidently recommended always to conform to rules which are both generally useful and generally practiced in the case of rules of which the general observance would be useful but does not exist or of rules which are generally practised but which are not useful no such universal recommendations can be made in many cases the sanctions attached may be decisive in favour of conformity to the existing custom but it seems worth pointing out that even apart from these the general utility of an action most commonly depends upon the fact that it is generally practised in a society where certain kinds of theft are the common rule the utility of abstinence from such theft on the part of a single individual becomes exceedingly doubtful even though the common rule is a bad one there is therefore a strong probability in favour of adherence to an existing custom even if it be a bad one but we cannot in this case assert with any confidence that this probability is always greater than that of the individual's power to judge that an exception will be useful since we are here supposing certain one relevant fact namely that the rule which he proposes to follow would be better than that which he proposes to break if it were generally observed consequently the effect of his example, so far as it tends to break down the existing custom, will here be for the good. 
the cases where another rule would certainly be better than that generally observed are however according to what was said above very rare and cases of doubt which are those which arise most frequently carry us into the next division of our subject one hundred beta this next division consists in the discussion of the method by which an individual should decide what to do with regard to possible actions of which the general utility cannot be proved and it should be observed that according to our previous conclusions this discussion will cover almost all actions except those which in our present state of society are generally practised for it has been urged that a proof of general utility is so difficult that it can hardly be conclusive except in a very few cases it is certainly not possible with regard to all actions which are generally practised though here if the sanctions are sufficiently strong they are sufficient by themselves to prove the general utility of the individual's conformity to custom and if it is possible to prove a general utility in the case of some actions not generally practised it is certainly not possible to do so by the ordinary method which tries to show in them a tendency to that preservation of society which is itself a mere means but only by the method by which in any case as will be urged the individual ought to guide his judgment namely by showing their direct tendency to produce what is good in itself or to prevent what is bad the extreme improbability that any general rule with regard to the utility of an action will be correct seems in fact to be the chief principle which should be taken into account in discussing how the individual should guide his choice if we accept those rules which are both generally practised and strongly sanctioned among us there seem to be hardly any of such a kind that equally good arguments cannot be found both for and against them the most that can be said for the contradictory principles which are urged by moralists of different schools as universal duties are in general that they point out actions which for persons of a particular character and in particular circumstances would and do lead to a balance of good it is no doubt possible that the particular dispositions and circumstances which generally render certain kinds of action advisable might to some degree be formulated but it is certain that this has never yet been done and it is important to notice that even if it were done it would not give us what moral laws are usually supposed to be rules which it would be desirable for every one and even for most people to follow moralists commonly assume that in the matter of actions or habits of action usually recognized as duties or virtues it is desirable that every one should be alike whereas it is certain that under actual circumstances and possible that even in a much more ideal condition of things the principle of division of labour according to special capacity which is recognized in respect of employments would also give a better result in respect of virtues it seems therefore that in cases of doubt 
instead of following rules of which he is unable to see the good effects in his particular case the individual should rather guide his choice by a direct consideration of the intrinsic value or vileness of the effects which his action may produce judgments of intrinsic value have this superiority over judgments of means that if once true they are always true whereas what is a means to a good effect in one case will not be so in another for this reason the department of ethics which it would be most useful to elaborate for practical guidance is that which discusses what things have intrinsic value and in what degrees and this is precisely that department which has been most uniformly neglected in favour of attempts to formulate rules of conduct we have however not only to consider the relative goodness of different effects but also the relative probability of their being attained a less good that is more likely to be attained is to be preferred to a greater that is less probable if the difference in probability is great enough to outweigh the difference in goodness and this fact seems to entitle us to assert the general truth of three principles which ordinary moral rules are apt to neglect one that a lesser good for which any individual has a strong preference if only it be a good and not an evil is more likely to be a proper object for him to aim at than a greater one which he is unable to appreciate for natural inclination renders it immensely more easy to attain that for which such inclination is felt two since almost every one has a much stronger preference for things which closely concern himself it will in general be right for a man to aim rather at goods affecting himself and those in whom he has a strong personal interest than to attempt a more extended beneficence egoism is undoubtedly superior to altruism as a doctrine of means in the immense majority of cases the best thing we can do is to aim at securing some good in which we are concerned since for that very reason we are far more likely to secure it three goods which can be secured in a future so near as to be called the present are in general to be preferred to those which being in a further future are for that reason far less certain of attainment if that is to say as a mere means to good we are apt to neglect one fact at least which is certain namely that a thing that is really good in itself if it exists now has precisely the same value as a thing of the same kind which may be caused to exist in the future moreover moral rules as has been said are in general not directly means to positive goods but to what is necessary for the existence of positive goods and so much of our labour must in any case be devoted to securing the continuance of what is thus a mere means the claims of industry and attention to health determine the employment of so large a part of our time that in cases where choice is open the certain attainment of a present good will in general have the strongest claims upon us if it were not so the whole of life would be spent in merely assuring its continuance and so far as the same rule were continued in the future that for the sake for which it is worth having would never exist at all 
101. 4. A fourth conclusion, which follows from the fact that what is right or what is our duty must, in any case, be defined as what is a means to good, is, as was pointed out above, that the common distinction between these and the expedient or useful disappears. Our duty is merely that which will be a means to the best possible and the expedient, if it is really expedient, must be just the same. We cannot distinguish them by saying that the former is something which we ought to do, whereas of the latter we cannot say we ought. In short, the two concepts are not, as is commonly assumed by all except utilitarian moralists, simple concepts ultimately distinct. There is no such distinction in ethics. The only fundamental distinction is between what is good in itself and what is good as a means, the latter of which implies the former. But it has been shown that the distinction between duty and expediency does not correspond to this. Both must be defined as means to good, though both may also be ends in themselves. The question remains, then, what is the distinction between duty and expediency? One distinction to which these distinct words refer is plain enough. Certain classes of action commonly excite the specifically moral sentiments, whereas other classes do not. And the word duty is commonly applied only to the class of actions which excite moral approval, or of which the omission excites moral disapproval, especially to the latter. Why this moral sentiment should have become attached to some kinds of action, and not to others, is a question which certainly not yet be answered, but it may be observed that we have no reason to think that the actions to which it was attached were, or are, in all cases such as aided or aid the survival of a race. It was probably originally attached to many religious rites and ceremonies which had not the smallest utility in this respect it appears however that among us the classes of action to which it is attached also have two other characteristics in enough cases to have influenced the meaning of the words duty and expediency one of these is that duties are in general actions which a considerable number of individuals are strongly tempted to omit the second is that the omission of duty generally entails consequences markedly disagreeable to someone else. The first of these is a more universal characteristic than the second, since the disagreeable effects on other people of the self-regarding duties, prudence and temperance, are not so marked as those on the future of the agent himself, whereas the temptations to imprudence and intemperance are very strong still on the whole the class of actions called duties exhibit both characteristics they are not only actions against the performance of which there are strong natural inclinations but also actions of which the most obvious effects commonly considered goods are effects on other people expedient actions on the other hand are actions to which strong natural inclinations prompt us almost universally and of which all the most obvious effects commonly considered goods are effects upon the agent we may then roughly distinguish duties from expedient actions as actions with regard to which there is a moral sentiment 
which we are often tempted to omit, and of which the most obvious effects are effects upon others than the agent. But it is to be noticed that none of these characteristics, by which a duty is distinguished from an expedient action, gives us any reason to infer that the former class of actions are more useful than the latter, that they tend to produce a greater balance of good. Nor, when we ask the question, is this my duty? Do we mean to ask whether the action in question has these characteristics? We are asking simply whether it will produce the best possible results on the whole. And if we ask this question with regard to expedient actions, we should quite as often have to answer it in the affirmative as when we ask it with regard to actions which have the three characteristics of duties. It is true that when we ask the question, is this expedient, we are making a different question, namely, whether it will have a certain kinds of effect, with regard to which we do not inquire whether they are good or not. Nevertheless, if it should be doubted in any particular case whether these effects were good, this doubt is understood as throwing doubt upon the action's expediency. If we are required to prove an action's expediency, we can only do so by asking precisely the same question by which we should prove it a duty, namely, has it the best possible effects on the whole? Accordingly, the question whether an action is a duty or merely expedient is one which has no bearing on the ethical question whether we ought to do it. In the sense in which either duty or expediency are taken as ultimate reasons for doing an action, they are taken in exactly the same sense. If I ask whether an action is really my duty or really expedient, the predicate of which I question the applicability to the action in question is precisely the same. In both cases I am asking, is this event the best on the whole which I can effect? and whether the event in question be some effect upon what is mine, as it usually is where we talk of expediency, or some other event, as is usual where we talk of duty. This distinction has no more relevance to my answer than the distinction between two different effects on me or two different effects on others. The true distinction between duties and expedient actions is not that the former are actions which it is in any sense more useful or obligatory or better to perform, but that they are actions which it is more useful to praise and to enforce by sanctions, since they are actions which there is a temptation to omit. 102. With regard to interested actions, the case is somewhat different. When we ask the question, is this really to my interest, we appear to be asking exclusively whether its effects upon me are the best possible, and it may well happen that what will affect me in the manner which is really the best possible will not produce the best possible results on the whole. Accordingly, my true interest may be different from the cause which is really expedient and dutiful. To assert that in action is to my interest is indeed, as was pointed out in chapter 3, to assert that its effects are really good. My own good, 
only denotes some event affecting me which is good absolutely and objectively it is the thing and not its goodness which is mine everything must be either a part of universal good or else not good at all there is no third alternative conception good for me but my interest though it must be something truly good is only one among possible good effects and hence by effecting it though we shall be doing some good we may be doing less good on the whole than if we had acted otherwise self-sacrifice may be a real duty just as the sacrifice of any single good whether affecting ourselves or others may be necessary in order to obtain a better total result hence the fact that an action is really to my interest can never be a sufficient reason for doing it by showing that it is not a means to the best possible we do not show that it is not to my interest as we do show that it is not expedient nevertheless there is no necessary conflict between duty and interest what is to my interest may also be a means to the best possible and the chief distinction conveyed by the distinct words duty and interest seems to be not this source of possible conflict but the same which is conveyed by the contrast between duty and expediency by interested actions are mainly meant those which whether a means to the best possible or not are such as have their most obvious effects on the agent which he generally has no temptation to omit and with regard to which we feel no moral sentiment that is to say the distinction is not primarily ethical here too duties are not in general more useful or obligatory than interested actions they are only actions which it is more useful to praise end of chapter five part three